Our passage is John 5, verse 19 to 29. We're going to read it as we begin. Before we read it, I'd like to start with a quote from a guy named J.C. Ryle. J.C. was the first Anglican bishop of Liverpool. He had a really great beard. He would have fit in today in a a hipster community. He's remembered as a great Bible scholar. And I just want to read to you some of the things that he said about our particular passage. He said, nowhere else, speaking about John 5, 19 to 29, nowhere else in the Gospels do we find our Lord making such a formal, systematic, orderly, regular statement of his own unity with the Father, his divine commission and authority, and the proofs of his Messiahship, as we find in this discourse, it seems one of the deepest things of the Bible. So that's a heavy word to take in, to just stop and to think what we're about to read in John 5 as part of a discourse where Jesus says some things more clearly than almost any other place in the Bible, and that the things Jesus says about himself here are some of the deepest things in all of Scripture. So with that said, let's read the passage, John 5, beginning in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but is given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It's the word of God. I just want to set the stage with a little bit of context. The words that we just read in verse 19 to 29 were spoken in response or as part of a conflict that began in John 5, verse 1 to 18. And we talked about this last week, but it's been a week, so let me just refresh your memory. There was a feast in, in Jerusalem, and Jesus traveled up to this feast. The disciples aren't mentioned, so it's possible or maybe probable that he went up alone. And he goes to this feast. We don't know which one it was. He does not, while at the feast, he does not break the Sabbath commandment. He very 
certainly and very intentionally breaks the man-made Sabbath rules and regulations of the Jews. And he does it in a way that they know he broke their man-made Sabbath regulations. And so one of the things he does is he heals a man on the Sabbath. This man could have lived to the next day, but Jesus heals him on the Sabbath, and he does it intentionally. Another thing he does... He tells the man to pick up his bed, to pick up his mat, and to carry it with him, which was breaking one of the rules of the Jews that they had surrounding the Sabbath. And Jesus does this, and the Jews are not amused. They're outraged. They're furious. They're irate with Jesus. And Jesus shows up in the the verses we're reading here. He doesn't show up, but this conversation continues. And rather than try to be calm and sort of dial it back and say, oh, I don't think you misunderstood me. Let's not disagree about this. Let's try to get on the same page. Jesus just takes gasoline and pours it on the fire. And he just makes it worse. And the Jews are furious. John 5 verse 18 makes it abundantly clear that they understood everything Jesus was saying, but they didn't believe in Jesus. If you just look at verse 18, it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, meaning their rules regarding the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. And they understood what Jesus was saying when he said that. He was making himself equal with God. They're irate. And Jesus doesn't try to back off at all. He just pours gasoline on the fire. I need you to understand what we're talking about this morning in John 5, 19 to 29. We sang about this just a minute ago, but this is a Trinitarian passage. This is a Trinitarian passage. And the Trinity is kind of hard for us to understand. We come up with all sorts of weird analogies and explanations. None of them are very good. We're kind of uncomfortable with it. Sometimes we think the Trinity, that's like weird theological math that I don't quite understand, or the Trinity, that's something that people at seminary can argue and debate about and discuss about. I need you to understand the Trinity is central and essential to the Christian faith. You remove this idea that God is three in one, and you are no longer talking about the Christian faith at all. The orthodox formulation of the Trinity goes like this, God is one in essence and three in person. There is only one God. But we read the scriptures, and as clear as they are that there's only one God, we read that there are three different persons who are truly and fully God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the Spirit's going to come later in the Gospel of John. He's going to become part of what Jesus is teaching his disciples. In this passage, the focus is on the Father and the Son. And I just need you to understand, this is essential to the Christian faith. You yank this doctrine out and you're no longer talking about Christianity. It's central and it's essential to what we believe as followers of Jesus. Here's the big idea of the passage. The authority of Jesus is rooted in the identity of Jesus. Jesus' authority is grounded or rooted in his identity in who he is. And the problem in this passage is not a problem of understanding. The Jews understand everything Jesus is saying. The problem is they refuse to accept that he is who he claims to be. They refuse to accept that Jesus is who he claims to be. And the result is they have absolutely no respect for his authority. 
And I want you to understand the exact same thing is true for you and me today, thousands of years later. If you don't know who Jesus is, you will never gladly and joyfully submit to his authority. Never. You will defy his authority. You'll grumble about his authority. You'll feel like his authority is oppressive to you and restrictive to you. But when you begin to understand who he is, when his identity is nailed down in your heart and your mind, that changes the way that you relate to him and it changes the way you think about his authority. Let me tell you a quick story. And the story I'm about to tell you, I'm not trying to make a hero out of anyone, and I'm not trying to make a villain out of anyone. I just want to tell you this story. This is current events. There's a guy named Israel Falau. His nickname is Izzy. He's a rugby player in Australia. I know nothing about Australia. I know less about rugby, but apparently this guy's a big deal. He's a good rugby player in Australia. He also claims to be a follower of Jesus, and he got in trouble over the last couple of weeks because he put something on his Instagram account that people found very, very offensive. All the post was was a quotation from Galatians 5, and the, the post listed out a number of different sins, and the point of the post was, if you continue in these things, you will not go to heaven, you'll go to hell, and you need to repent and believe in Jesus. That was the point of the post. In the list of sins that he put on there, there were several things. It, it talked about idolaters, atheists, thieves, fornicators, liars, homosexuals, adulterers, drunks. And there's a group of people in Australia when he put this post out that said the, the part about homosexuals in particular just infuriated them, sent them over the moon, and it just caused a firestorm. And so this guy had his contract revoked. He got kicked off his, his rugby team. He had his ASICs sponsorship pulled. He had a sponsorship with a shoe company. He doesn't have that anymore. And he's just been branded as this big, massive hate monger. This guy's just the worst. He hates people. How could you say that? How dare you? So that's the, the situation. This is where I think the story gets interesting. That's not interesting. That sort of thing happens all the time, right? Here's the interesting part of the story. There's a pastor, and I'm not trying to villainize anyone. I'm just telling you what happened. There's a pastor in Australia named Brian Houston. He pastors the biggest church in Australia, Hillsong Church. And so this big thing happens, and the media goes to Brian Houston, and they say, give us comment. What do you think about what has happened? Okay. Now, to his credit, Brian Houston, initially in his comment, you can read it on the internet, he initially says, look, religious liberty is important. We should be able to say what we believe. We should be able to express that. No one should be in fear of you know, losing their job or losing their livelihood because they're just sharing what they believe to be true. And he sort of said some good things there that I think most of us would say, yeah, that's, I agree with that. There should be freedom of speech and there should be religious liberty even with those you disagree with. That's why you have freedom of speech, right? To protect people whose views aren't exactly popular. Then he went on to say this, and this is what I find a little bit interesting. He said, if you look at the list of sins, is he listed? There's not too many people he's left out, including Christians. There isn't a person on earth who hasn't told a lie or put something before God, which would be idolatry. He says, while sin is a real issue, the God I know and seek to follow is a God of love. He says that he did not come to condemn the world, he came to save it. That's a quote, a loose quote, from John 3, 17. Jesus says, I did not come to condemn the world, but I came 
to save the world. So he quotes John 3.17. As Christians, we would do well to follow the example of the founder of our faith. And he ends with these words. I believe there is a heaven and a hell. But if you study scripture, you won't read about Jesus screaming to people that they are all going to hell. In fact, Jesus, John the Baptist, and the Apostle Paul all kept their harshest criticism for those who were religious and judgmental. It's interesting. It's an interesting quote. And we could dissect it and we could pick it apart and we could talk about all sorts of different political aspects of it or religious aspects of it. Here's the one piece I want to pull out of that. And I'm not trying to demonize anyone. I just want you to think about this. Of all the verses in the New Testament that Pastor Brian could have gone to, he picks John 3, 17. Son of man did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. We talked about that verse a few weeks ago. I didn't ask you to strike it out of your Bible. I didn't say it wasn't important. I didn't say, you know, don't listen to that. It's a great verse. Do you remember what John 3, 18 says? says, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world, he came to save the world because the world is already condemned. That kind of changes the way you think about verse 17 when Jesus follows it up and says, I didn't come to condemn the world because I don't need to do that. It's already condemned. And he seems in his response to sort of obfuscate the issue between sin that we acknowledge as sin and we repent of and sin that we say is not actually sin at all and we celebrate. There seems to be a little bit of confusion on that issue. And while he goes to John 3, he didn't quote John 5. And we just read John 5, 19 to 29. And Jesus says repeatedly in this passage, the Father has given judgment to me. How does John 5 fit into that situation? Look, the point this morning and the point with what we do on Sunday mornings in this room or in Sunday school classes, the point with what you do at home is not to go home and to, to learn how to cherry pick verses to prove my agenda or your agenda or anyone else's agenda. Anyone in the world can open this book, do an easy Google search, find the verses that seem to support or support their viewpoint. Anyone can do that. The point is to say, will you listen to the whole counsel of God? Will you listen to Jesus when he says things about himself that aren't comforting and encouraging and popular and shared frequently on social media? Will you listen to Jesus when he says things like this? When the people that were listening to him originally were literally planning to murder him, they were so irate. And Jesus doesn't back off, he just pours gasoline on the fire. Will you listen to Jesus when he says those things? And so the question this morning is very simple. What does John 5, 19 to 29, teach us about who Jesus is? We've talked about John 3. We're going to work all the way through the gospel, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. But this morning, this is our passage. What does it teach us about who Jesus is? Number one, it teaches us that Jesus is God. Jesus is God. It runs through the whole text. And the way that Jesus describes it here is he says, all the things the Father does are things that I do. And the Jews know exactly what he's saying. He's taking all of these actions that belong to only the Lord Yahweh, the God of Israel, and he's saying, guess what? I do the same things. So in verse 19, he just says, what the Father does, I do. In verse 29, he says, the Father gives life and I give life. In verse 23, he says, the Father's worthy of honor and I'm worthy of honor. In verse 26, he says, the Father has life in himself and I have life in myself. And the kicker comes in verse 27, 
Jesus says, I am the Son of Man. He, the Father, has given him, the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And when Jesus said the Son of Man, everyone listening to him knew he's talking about Daniel 7. Daniel 7 says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This is what Jesus is talking about. This one like a son of man, he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. And to him, to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, all the nations, all the languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus is saying to these guys who already want to kill him, that's me. That's me. And when you read it in Daniel 7 and you read it in John 5, this is Trinitarian language. Right? People may object to you. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. This is Trinitarian language. There is equality here between the Father and the Son. They do the same things. They possess the same things. They are both worthy of honor and glory, and they both rule and reign over a kingdom. There's equality, but there's also distinction. The Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father, and neither of them are the Spirit. There's equality in distinction. One in essence, three in person. And the people listening to Jesus refuse to believe it. They absolutely cannot take it in. For the last couple of weeks, I've been a little bit grouchy. I've been yelling at people. People have gone to see this new Avengers movie, and I didn't get to go see it on opening weekend. And People come talk to me, and they say, hey, have you seen the movie? And I say, do not say anything to me. I'm not your friend. I don't want to talk to you. Don't look at me that way. Just don't text me. I'm blocking you on everything. Don't. And I wanted to see it. And I'm not going to ruin it for you. You have at least another week till I start using it as sermon illustrations and, <laughs> and ruin it for you. So I'll give you one more week. Here's the point. People on this planet just spent an incredible amount of money to go see that movie. An incredible amount of money. To watch a story about saviors, about heroes who are just a little bit more than human. And you can call it sci-fi and you can say, oh, it's action and adventure. And you can say, oh, I'm there for the special effects. But there's something to that story that resonates with people on earth. There's something that sort of connects with people where we say there's a deliverer, there's a savior, there's a hero, or there's a group of them coming. And they're more, they're not just human, they're more than human. Look, that, that kind of story resonates with us because it's a faint echo of the true story that we're reading about in John chapter 5 of a hero sent from another land to save people who was more than just a mere human. This is God, John 1. This is the Word who in the beginning existed before anything existed, who was with God, distinction, and who was God, equality. He made everything, and he became flesh, and he tabernacled among us. He lived among us, and he came that we might have life, that we might be born again. We're dead in our sins, and he came that we would have life. This is an echo of this story, and the Jews refused to believe it. 
Who is Jesus? Number one, he's God. Number two, he's the source of life. He's the source of life. Look at verse 21. As the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. I just want you to think about that part of what Jesus says. The Son gives life, the Father gives life, and the Son does that too, and he gives life to whoever he will. You hear Jesus say that, and you almost want to ask the question, why do you get to give life? To whom you will. Why is that your decision? Why is that your prerogative? And I think really the answer is pretty simple. It's his. If I was to come home with you this afternoon and crash your Mother's Day celebration, and I waited till you were, you know, taking that Sunday afternoon nap and everyone was asleep, and I went around your house and I boxed up all your best decor, paintings, lamps, knickknacks, boxed them all up, took them, and gave them to your neighbor, that would not be okay with you. You would say, that's my stuff. That belongs to me. You don't get to do what you want to do with my stuff. That's my stuff. Now, if I go home this afternoon and I put my kids to bed and let my wife take a Mother's Day nap, and then I want to box up all the stuff in my house and give it to somebody, you say, well, whatever. Kind of weird. That's your stuff. You can do what you want to do with it. That's Jesus' argument here. Life belongs to the Father. Life belongs to the Son. It's theirs to give. We don't have any claim on it. It's not ours to do with what we want to do with. It's theirs. And Jesus says in verse 21, the Father raises the dead and gives them life, and you need to understand the Son gives life to whom he Will. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes, whoever hears and whoever believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death to life. That's very churchy words, very spiritual sounding stuff. And you might just read over it real easy and not miss the narrowness that Jesus is speaking with. So listen to it one more time. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Jesus is saying there is only one way for you to move from death to life. There's only one way. That's to hear his word and to believe it. That's the only way. You can't work for it. You can't put enough money in that offering box for it. You can't be nice enough to your neighbor to earn it. You can't do it. You have to hear and you believe. And there's no other person that can give it to you. Right? Muhammad doesn't have life to give you. Buddha has no life to give you. Krishna has no life to offer you. Joseph Smith has no life to offer you. Jesus has life. It's his to do with what he wants to do with. And if you will hear and believe, you will move from death to life. And it's the only way, Jesus says, that you will not come into judgment. If you don't hear and you don't believe, you will come into judgment. You're not going to move from death to life. But if you hear and if you believe, you move from death and you move to life. I think this is, this is tying into the very next idea, this idea that Jesus is worthy of honor. He's the source of life and he's worthy of honor. 
Look at verse 22 and 23. Again, remember what Ryle said? These are the deepest, weightiest, hardest things to think through, some of them in the entire Bible. But look what Jesus says in verse 22. The Father judges no one. He has given all judgment to the Son. Why? Verse 23. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. That they would honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I just want you to think through the logic of what Jesus is saying. I'll put it up on the screen. When you honor the Son, you're honoring the Father. When you honor this carpenter from Nazareth, you're honoring the creator of the universe. But when you dishonor Jesus, when you refuse to believe, or when you say you believe, but then you live your life as if you don't believe, when you dishonor Jesus, you are dishonoring God, the Father, the Creator. These two things, they're intertwined in a way that you and I don't get to untangle them. You can say, you know, that's so narrow. I, I'm, just, I'm just broadly religious. I just... I'm just kind of a spiritual person. I don't want all the specifics. I just want a little spirituality, and and I'm going to pull for this. You can say, I'm just seeking for some truth and some things that work for me and my life, and here's my truth, and you can have your truth. I just This is what Jesus says. There's an exclusivity here that is deeply offensive to people, not just in the 21st century, in the first century. What do you mean? We have to honor you. A nobody from Nazareth if we want to honor the Father. Jesus says, I I don't know what to tell you, but when you honor me, you honor God, the Father. And if you dishonor me, you're dishonoring God. And that's exclusive or narrow. Whatever you want to say, that's what it is. This is exactly what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6. A little bit later, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You can't come to the Father unless you come through the Son. There's just not any other way. And you can rack your brain and rage and be angry and upset and say, well, that's not fair. There should be more ways. But when you really understand who God is and you understand who you are as a sinner, you're not going to object that there's only one way. You're going to be in awe that there is a way. Jesus says there's a way. You have to hear and believe. And if you do that, you pass from death to life. You escape judgment. I'm the source of life, and I am worthy of honor. And it only can happen through Jesus. John Calvin says it like this, talking about the exclusivity of what Jesus is saying. Muslims and Jews, he just picks two groups out of all that you could pick. Muslims and Jews give the God they worship beautiful and magnificent titles. However, We should remember that whenever God's name is separated from Christ, it is nothing more than empty imagination. There is a way, and there's only one way, because he's the source of life, and he is worthy of honor. And the Bible says in the end, he's going to get that honor. Philippians 2 describes it as every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of who? To the glory of the Father. You confess that Jesus is Lord and the Father is honored. That's not, Paul didn't make that up. This is what we're talking about. He knew the words of Jesus. The book of Revelation describes it like this. They sang a new song. They're singing to the Lamb. 
to the lion. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Sounds a lot like Daniel, right? The Son of Man is going to rule over all the, all the languages, all the tribes, all the peoples. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. Daniel says his kingdom is never going to end. Well, here it is. You made a, king, a kingdom of them and a priest, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads, thousands of thousands, and they're saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. You listen to that, right? The same John wrote those words and saw that vision that wrote this gospel. You listen to this idea that Jesus is worthy of honor, that for all eternity, all of creation is going to proclaim his honor and glory. If that's true for all eternity, it's certainly true for the 1030 hour at Emmanuel Baptist Church in 2019. That when we gather together, you don't need to think highly of me. You don't think, need to think highly of the praise team. We're not here to, to entertain you or to put on a good show for you. We are here gathered together to honor Jesus, to glorify Jesus. Why? Because he's God, because he's the source of life, because he's worthy of all of this honor, and it's the only way that we can honor the Father. And lastly, number four, because he's the judge. He's the judge. Verse 22. The Father judges no one, but he has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 27, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. And I don't know about you, but for many of us in the 21st century United States, this may be the point where we really need to adjust our thinking to line up with Scripture. Right? We hear this idea, Jesus is God. We say, okay, lots of people have claimed that sort of thing. We can swallow that. And you hear Jesus is the source of life. He has life. He can give life. We say, okay, everyone's, everyone's sort of offering that. I can live with that. It's not too threatening to me. I need life. Jesus can give it to me. Great. You say, Jesus is worthy of honor. You say, check. I show up here. I sing the songs. I, I'm willing to give him honor. This is one of the things that might challenge our 21st century sensibilities. Jesus saying, I am the judge. The Father has granted this to me to execute judgment. I think you listen to Jesus in these verses talk about his role as the judge. And it doesn't negate what he said in John 3.17 at all. John 3.17 is true. It's gloriously true that the Son of Man did not come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. He came to save us because we were condemned, left to ourselves. He didn't need to do that. It had already been done by us. He came to save us. And you couple that truth with the very next verse. John 3.18 and 3.17, they go together. He came to save. We were already condemned. And you couple John 3 with John 5, and you say, yes, he came to save us. But in the end, he's going to be the judge. And I think the challenge for you and me is not to just cherry pick one verse here or one verse there to say, well, the Jesus I know fits this one verse. 
but rather to take what we think about Jesus and to make it fit what the Bible says about him. And Jesus says here, the Father has given judgment to the Son. I don't want you to miss the irony of all this in the the flow of the story. When Jesus says, the Father has given judgment to me, he's granted it to me, he's looking at a group of fellows who have effectively already put him on trial. They've made up their mind about Jesus and they're already seeking to put him to death. He isn't who he claims to be and we're going to be done with him. And John doesn't want you to miss the irony. I don't want you to miss the irony that here are these mere mortals putting the judge on trial. And they don't have eyes to see it and they don't have ears to hear it. And I pray this morning that you do. I pray that the Spirit of God would open your eyes to the truth, open your heart to the truth, that you and I wouldn't come and try to make the Bible fit what we think Jesus should be like, that we wouldn't try to make the Bible fit sensibilities and and thoughts in the 21st century, that we wouldn't pull one verse here and one verse here and ignore entire chapters, but that we would come humbly and that we would hear Jesus. Jesus says, if you hear and if you believe, you don't need to critique, you don't need to edit, you need to hear, you need to believe. And if you do that, Jesus says, you pass from death into life, from death to life, and you will not come into judgment. So I'm going to ask you to bow, and I want to pray for you as we end this morning.